Only you can prevent wildfires. We've all heard this phrase, whether it was on a commercial when watching TV before school or was played on the radio, we are all familiar with this voice. The voice belongs to Smokey the Bear. A mascot for the Forest Service in the United States, Smokey has proven to be a provoking figure in communicating the dangers of human-caused wildfires. His provocation is a unique interpretive strategy. By anthropomorphizing a bear to make him more relatable, kids learn at a young age the importance of conservation. However, Smokey is just a facet in confronting environmental and ecological issues in the interpretive field. Since these issues were brought to light by scientific research and activism, various natural and industrial sites serve as important places to educate on the happenings which plague our natural world. Let us explore the roots of this practice the issues confronted, and the value of this confrontation. This is the Kalamazoo Valley Museum's Interpretive Hour. My name is Gray Wilson. And I'm Jacob Wolf. And before we jump into the modern mold of environmentalism, I think it's important to take a step back and take a look at the movement before it came to be as we know it today. Now, concerns surrounding the concept of environmentalism did not arise, nor did they give way to any public activism until rather recently in history. The environmentalism movement came to light in the late 19th century primarily as a result of concerns about the effects of pollution as a result of the Industrial Revolution. Pollution in the European countryside, as well as a large portion of American wilderness, led to a great deal of concern regarding pollution levels and health consequences. In addition, the nation began to fear that it would soon run out of vital resources, namely timber that was being consumed at a rapid rate. Traditionally, the predominant reasoning behind conservation was largely anthropocentric, meaning that it was our duty to protect nature, but only because doing so benefited humans. However, the 20th century birthed a new model of environmental thinking among those who saw the environment as inherently good, apart from the value that it bears for humanity. The U.S. Forest Service developed an early philosophy of resource conservation, believing that conservation was characterized by the wise and efficient use of our nation's resources, rather than them existing purely to supply humanity's ever-growing demand. As well as this, a very biocentric model of environmentalism took hold at roughly the same time in the preservationist ideology of John Muir and Aldo Leopold. Now, Aldo Leopold was an instrumental figure in the environmentalism movement. In 1922, he developed the proposal to manage the Gila National Forest as a wilderness area. It did become the country's first official wilderness area in 1924. In Madison, Wisconsin, later in the same year, Leopold continued to investigate ecology and the philosophy of conservation, and in 1933 published the first textbook in the field of wildlife management, known as Game Management. Being a prolific author of articles for both professional journals and popular magazines, 
Leopold conceived of a book geared for general audiences which would examine humanity's relationship to the natural world. This was known as a Sand County Almanac. This has become one of the most respected books about the environment ever published, and Leopold has come to be regarded by many as the most influential conservation thinker of the 20th century. Leopold introduced the concept of a land ethic, arguing that humans should transform themselves from conquerors of nature into citizens of it. His essays, compiled posthumously in a Sand County Almanac, had a significant influence on later biocentric environmentalists. Leopold's dedication towards the preservation of places like the Gila National Forest or the Grand Canyon, as well as his work alongside other pioneers in the field of conservation, such as President Theodore Roosevelt and John Muir, helped set the precedent for the following century of American environmentalism. Now, John Muir has been widely regarded as perhaps America's most historically influential advocate for its natural places. Muir dedicated his life to preserving wilderness, and his efforts were largely successful. Muir's extensive writing spread awareness of wild places as he became a voice for political change, and eventually his advocacy became policy as he was instrumental in the establishment of the nation's first national parks. President Theodore Roosevelt's innovative conservation programs included establishment of the first national monuments by presidential proclamation, as well as the establishment of Yosemite National Park by congressional action, all of which was largely inspired by Muir. In addition, Muir co-founded the Sierra Club with the goal of furthering preservation and filling in the gaps left by government conservation work. The Sierra Club today has over 1.3 million members and supporters and is the oldest, largest, and most influential grassroots environmental organization in the United States. Today, the Sierra Club has evolved to address more modern issues that are plaguing the environment, predominantly changing climate, thus preserving the legacy of Muir. In the early 20th century, environmental organizations were mainly comprised of middle-class lobbying groups concerned with nature conservation, wildlife protection, and the pollution that arose from industrial development and urbanization. Moving forward nearly half a century, the 1950s and 60s introduced a new wave of environmental philosophy by means of the establishment of green political movements in the form of activist non-governmental organizations as well as environmentalist political parties. The political goals of contemporary green movement in the industrialized West focused on changing government policy and promoting environmental social values. Though the movement varied widely, Ideology could be traced back to the common goals of protection of the environment, grassroots democracy, social justice, and nonviolence. And the roots of this uh, modern green movement are nuanced. However, a very important publication of a book led to its genesis and led to its popularization across America. This book is called Silent Spring, and it was published in 1962 written by Rachel Carson. The book addressed the use of pesticides, especially DDT, on fields and the implication that it had on not only wildlife, but also the food that humans ate. It created a narrative that caused individuals to sympathize with the cause and the issues that DDT brought upon not only the natural world, but potentially their own. Many average Americans now knew that this technological advancement did have implications on the environment, 
And although it meant more crops, it also meant less animals, disruption of wildlife patterns, as well as potentially harmful effects for their food consumption. In no way was this the root of the environmental movement, as Gray outlined, but it indeed had a huge impact on popularizing it. It rallied many people to fight against what they were not aware of for a long time, that profit-driven industry can destroy the natural world. Carson is deeply credited for being the root of this political activism and its tie to environmentalism. In 1963, she testified in Congress, even whilst dying of cancer. In 1964, she would unfortunately pass. And this, this publication of the book, in some ways, because of how it is really the root of partisan political battles in the environment, is sometimes criticized. Because as a result of the book, Companies which benefited off of these harmful chemicals or practices built up a war chest. They were now prepared to fight whoever challenged their products. Some even claimed that banning DDT led to malaria issues in Africa, which in all ways ignores the evidence that Carson brought up. And this is, this is why this is an important book, because it's the root of that political activism that was now tied to environmentalism. Throughout the 1960s and 1970s, this would continue on to develop. A particularly notable case was at Love Canal in 1978, where toxic waste was seeping into the basements of homeowners in this New York suburb. It was then recognized that in the 1940s and 1950s, the Hooker Chemical Company dumped this toxic waste into their landfill, and that's why this was seeping into the basement of these homeowners. People were afraid that this was the root of increased cases of cancer, birth defects, and other increased chromosomal abnormalities in their society. In fact, a 1980 EPA study stated that residents may have had those increased chromosomal abnormalities. The media brought a lot of attention to this. And individuals recognized that this was not only an issue that just dealt with their own personal action, but it was a political issue. This event led to the establishment of Superfund. Superfund is a government program which dedicates itself to cleaning up industrial sites that have been drastically affected by pollution. And the environmental movement has also politicized itself more so beyond just companies affecting natural sites related to animals, their own suburbs and their homes, but has taken a global perspective as uh, aforementioned by Gray. This issue is climate change and global warming, and it has a nuanced history. Its roots are dating back to the early 20th century when Cervantes Arrhenius established the theory that increased greenhouse gases and CO2 in the atmosphere led to warming. Eventually, this theory would become common knowledge across the scientific field and proven. And in the 1950s, Guy Stewart Callender proposed to the Royal Meteorological Society, employing Arrhenius's theory, that increased greenhouse gases unleashed from British industry 
led to increased abnormal warming in the atmosphere. However, at this time, the Royal Meteorological Society was not convinced, thinking it was a natural cycle, but continual research proved him to be correct. Currently, the issue is scientifically supported by the academic community, although there exist skeptics, and national and state natural sites educate on its impact. People recognize that, first and foremost, Arrhenius was correct, that the Earth functions a lot like a greenhouse, where certain types of gases, these greenhouse gases, aren't able to exit the atmosphere and instead get trapped in. These include water vapor, methane, carbon dioxide, and nitrous oxide. These are prime emitters from industry, and their emission has increased rapidly since the Industrial Revolution. As a result, abnormal amounts of warming in the atmosphere have occurred, and people now recognize that this is an issue. And it has to do completely with human activity. It doesn't just have to do with our unleashing of these various types of greenhouse gases through our careless use of industry, but it also has to do with increased deforestation. Forests are the primary sponges for these greenhouse gases, and less trees means more greenhouse gases shot off into the atmosphere. This is one nuanced example for the many different types of human activity that affect our world today and the reason why temperatures are abnormally warming. Several scientists have suggested that maybe this has to do with changes in the energy from the sun. But this also was proven incorrect. Since 1750, the average amount of energy coming from the sun either remained constant or increased slightly. Overall, the scientific community universally agrees that human activity adversely affects the warming of the planet. In its fifth assessment report, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, a group of 1,300 independent scientific experts from countries all over the world under the auspices of the United Nations, concluded there's more than 95% probability that human activities over the past 50 years have warmed our planet. And for this reason, interpretive strategies at these natural sites are employed to discuss this issue which the scientific community has recognized as pivotal in the environmental movement. And one such institution that has adapted a very environmentally conscious point of view is the National Park Service. As they have described, responsibility was given to the service to preserve and protect significant resources within parks for the enjoyment of current and future generations. Today, as knowledge about climate change and its effects increase and potential impacts are better understood, the need to practice good stewardship and develop forward-thinking resource management plans is more relevant than ever. Now, the National Park Service is world-renowned for its superiority in the field of communication, namely regarding natural and cultural resources. This information is distributed to more than 300 million visitors on an annual basis, and for precisely this reason, the National Park Service is uniquely positioned to bring attention to the climate change that is affecting our national parks. Due to the severity of the effects, new climate science information, ecological and social responses, adaptation planning, and management strategies are being generated at an unprecedented rate. 
The National Park Service communication professionals are tasked with determining effective strategies in order to convey accurate information regarding climate change to a wide range of audiences. Upon doing so, these professionals facilitate conversations about possible climate change scenarios, encourage listeners to take part in sustainable practices, and provide services that enable individuals to achieve these solutions. Additionally, Working alongside world-class scientists allows National Park Service's communication professionals the opportunity to provide public access to research and expertise through a web-based approach. Employees of the National Park Service are trained thoroughly in climate change literacy in order to ensure their competency when sharing information with the public, as well as to enhance leadership and decision-making throughout the agency at all levels. The National Park Service offers climate change education programs such as Earth to Sky, a collaboration between National Park Service interpreters as well as scientists at NASA, in order to develop new seminars and courses regarding climate change and its consequences for park management and staff. Courses as such are reformed into programs to educate the general public about the impacts of climate change as well as climate-friendly technologies and practices. The programs being described create a wide array of opportunities for teachers, students, and the general public to learn about climate change through firsthand experience in national parks and learn how their actions make a difference in the parks as well as at their own homes. One of these programs is the Climate Friendly Parks Program. Through an education campaign known as Do Your Part, Visitors are encouraged to reduce their carbon footprint in manageable ways such as in transportation habits, lessening their resource usage, or even switching energy sources. Additionally, national parks across the country are conducting climate-friendly parks workshops in collaboration with the Environmental Protection Agency in order to evaluate efficiencies that could improve park operations. This involves developing strategies to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in the parks, the use of alternate fuel sources, as well as new forms of transportation in areas with particularly high visitation statistics. This can all be a very difficult subject to interpret, seeing that opinions vary widely regarding the validity of climate science as well as the severity of the impacts that we are experiencing. For precisely this reason, the interpreter is tasked with making the information not only transparent, but also relatable in an effort to engage as many visitors as possible, as well as elicit an actionable response. And although climate change is primarily a 21st century issue, despite its roots, several of these issues that John Muir and the earlier naturalists who are concerned with the environment that Gray discussed earlier, those issues are still prevalent in the interpretive strategy of these different organizations. The National Wildlife Organization uses interpretive means to reach people digitally, and they engage them in a way that doesn't have a primary interpreter physically there, but instead allows them to act as interpreters themselves, to engage them in their communities through creating certified wildlife habitats. According to their website, people can create these on their individual gardens or properties, Really, all one needs to do is provide food, water, cover, places to raise young, or just different sustainable practices to qualify to have this certification. It causes people to interact with nature in a tangible way. They are able to use this as a workshop, sort of, 
to then educate themselves on how animals interact with each other and what they need to survive. This brings increased awareness to the issue for not only themselves, but also potentially their neighbors as well, who then see the beauty of having a positive relationship between nature and man. It allows one to recognize that several human activities can lead to issues for these wildlife habitats, and if one cultivates a positive impression in their own backyard or on their own property, perhaps it can provoke them to go beyond, to communicate to other individuals, and to spread the word. Therefore, it's an effective interpretive strategy that doesn't use an interpreter and allows individuals to make their own conclusions about wildlife. Other important institutions that talk about ecology and wildlife conservation are zoos. Zoos serve as important interpretive venues to talk about these issues as animals are physically there and able to provoke. At these institutions, they have physical interpreters who discuss these issues. At the John Ball Zoo in Grand Rapids, Michigan, they have an interpretive manual for their tour guides. And in this manual, the word conservation comes up consistently as a core educational topic, which the zoo insists on teaching, and also as a tool to emphasize their contribution and to justify their donations. They employ the tour model and other important values of interpretation when exploring this. The John Ball Zoo exists in a myriad of other zoological institutions that provide interpretive means to discuss wildlife conservation. And as mentioned in the intro, the Forest Service employs an anthropomorphized bear, Smokey the Bear, to talk about importance of wildlife conservation in regards to preventing wildfires caused by humans. The idea of Smokey originated from the use of Bambi in a 1944 ad for preventing forest fires. It was very successful across the United States, but since the contract was up with Disney, they had to create a new mascot. They knew they wanted a bear, but it wasn't until 1950 that they really figured out who their bear would be. In 1950, near the Capitan Mountains in New Mexico, there was a forest fire, and a bear cub barely made it out alive. The cub became a celebrity, and the Forest Service named him Smokey. From there came Smokey the Bear. Although his popularity declined in the 1970s and 1980s, he was revitalized in the 1990s, and still remains a common figure across the United States. This unique interpretive strategy by anthropomorphizing an animal and using him in animated form as a means of interpretation to provoke children, as well as adults, is extremely effective. Woodsy Owl is actually a lesser known tool used by the Forest Service, and it's a very similar approach. Woodsy became an anti-pollution symbol in 1971 when he was created, and according to the Forest Service, has been instrumental in helping teachers and parents inspire children to care actively for the environment. His phrase, give a hoot, don't pollute, is fun, whimsical, and friendly, and motivates children to form healthy, lasting relationships with nature. In a way, this anthropomorphization, this process, this technique, this interpretive idea, is 
an extremely effective way to get people interested in nature in a way they hadn't been before, and to personally relate to it by ascribing human characteristics on these animals and recognizing that there are things that they have in similar with us and why we should either prevent forest fires, why we should not pollute, and why we should promote wildlife conservation in our own backyards and the world abroad. Well said, Jacob. And the very wide scope of interpretation regarding the environment around us has led to a variety of other unique methods and approaches, many of which have been taken by the National Park Service. As mentioned, the National Park Service offers a variety of education tools for educators and the public, both in person and online. And in particular, the Climate Change Communication Toolkit provides communication professionals with a variety of resources to effectively and responsibly convey information about our changing climate. This includes a great deal of publications by eminent climatologists that are made available to the public, as well as demonstrations or exhibits that highlight the issues, as well as what we can all do personally to help. One such demonstration is done regularly at Yosemite National Park in California. Yosemite recently lost one of its few remaining glaciers when park scientists declassified it. Back in 1872, John Muir conducted a series of experiments on Lyle Glacier in Yosemite National Park using sticks to determine how fast a glacier was moving. These sticks are still in the park's archive collection, and inspired by Muir's simple experiment, park scientists recreate the same experiment and determine the movement of glaciers today, which indicates that it is no longer moving at all due to the massive reduction in its size. In doing so, visitors are presented with an eyewitness account of the effects of climate change, which serves as a very potent education tool. Clearly, it is more difficult to refute a claim that is being proven in front of one's own eyes. In this same way, Montezuma Castle National Monument in Camp Verde, Arizona, has demonstrations regarding changing climates that have had consequences for cultures and civilizations of the past. Archaeologists have postulated that ancient cultures may have abandoned this exact site because of an increasingly harsh climate and competition for scarce water and food. Interpreters here emphasize the idea that the fate of past cultures is not necessarily ancient history and might in fact bear many links to our own experiences, in this case a message about human fate and changing climates. Again, this is a very compelling example as it urges visitors to reflect upon their own experiences and how they could possibly change given the circumstances. In a different sense is the exhibit conveyed by Everglades National Park in Florida, known as Bright Ideas and Alternative Energy. Through this initiative, a series of full-color outdoor signs were developed and installed as a means of introducing the public to climate change issues highlighting mitigation efforts, and inspiring visitors to take complementary actions at home. The signs were developed to highlight park investments in solar parking lot lighting, campground solar water heating, and the use of biodiesel in visitor trance. By viewing this information in a setting as such, visitors are far more likely to comprehend and appreciate the efforts that are being made. Additionally, it is far easier and more likely for visitors to take action when ideas are presented directly in front of them, as well as when they are in direct view of an area directly impacted by their choices. Understanding what the area might look like as a result of the effects of climate change is very likely to elicit an emotional response, and because of this, is likely to elicit an actionable response from the public. Similarly, 
Biscayne National Park in Key Biscayne, Florida, has an initiative known as Piecing Together a Changing Planet, which is an art exhibit that debuted in the park in 2014. This is a traveling show of 26 different quilts that highlight a few of the ways that national parks are being impacted by climate change and other human activities. After Biscayne, the quilt exhibition travels to many other parks, including Point Reyes National Seashore, Glacier National Park, the Statue of Liberty National Monument, Great Smoky Mountains National Park, and many others. The exhibit literally and figuratively demonstrates the impacts that are taking place. It depicts struggling orchids, among the many other flowers whose bloom times are impacted by climate change, icy glaciers melting down into an ocean of bleached coral heads, blocks of dry cracked earth with boot prints across the face to call to mind both drought and the concept of carbon footprint. This exhibit masterfully ties together many drastically different impacts of climate change into one cohesive and extremely compelling piece, and as a result, is once again very likely to evoke a strong emotional response out of the viewers. These examples are among an enormous amount of initiatives taken by the National Park Service, as well as many other environmentally conscious agencies. As stated, the need to practice good stewardship and develop forward-thinking resource management plans is more relevant than ever. With that being said, the efforts being made all across the nation to engage and call for action are of the highest importance. And now we'll talk a bit to our fellow interpreter, Wesley Vanderveg, about the Kalamazoo River and how he interprets this issue of how it's been environmentally impacted over the past few years. Thank you for coming on the show, Wes. Hey, it's good to be here. So uh, tell us a bit about what you've been researching. Well, I've been researching lots of things, uh, mostly about the uh, Kalamazoo River and the uh, PCB pollution levels that have happened in the past uh, 50, 70 years or so, uh, mostly on um, the leftover uh, chemicals that have been put into the river from the uh, paper industry. So, Awesome. Yeah. Uh, could you elaborate a bit more on that? Well, previously, um, you know, Kalamazoo was very big on the paper industry. They had a lot of uh, businesses that dumped uh, chemicals into the river during the time that they actually did their um, paper processing. And a lot of this had to do with um, PCB, like heavy industrial uh, chemical waste. Uh, that was just byproducts that from making the paper itself. So that ended up just going on into the river. And they did this for several years. So it really heavily ramped up in the 1950s. And the paper mill industry kept going. And um, by the time activists started actually acting out and started to actually prevent the um, material from getting out, uh, it was around the 1970s. So they decided to do major protests and that type of thing to prevent the waste from being dumped completely into the river. So, and that's around the time when it, the waste started to stop. When that happened, uh, the damage had already been done. So the PCBs and all of that hazardous material had already been dumped into the river. And so there's lots of different stories about that. Um, people who just go by the river and either go fishing or whatnot. Um, I've heard stories about people who uh, would take their bikes and put it in the river and then pull it out. And they were completely rusty bikes. And they'd pull them out and all of the rust would be taken clean off of the bike. 
because of all the chemical material that was left inside the river. So it's definitely uh, interesting. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's astonishing. How would you approach interpreting something like this? It's interesting to look at all this material and see all of these uh, pollutants being uh, put into a river from an industrial source. And people think that there's only so much they can do. But in reality, it's protesters themselves, the people that got together and were activists in that. They were the ones who actually pushed them to stop. They converted like big political leaders, uh, industry leaders to actually stop this pollution from happening. So I think it's more of as like an interpreter being aware of that issue and being able to inform others of that issue in a way that people who need to can make a difference in it. And that could be as simple as talking to people in the street and informing them about it. Because who knows, they might know someone who is high up in the board and they may be able to have a very great influence on the issue. So it depends on who people know and all of that. So it's more of getting the word out. So from that perspective, do you feel that interpretation can have a sort of real world impact on these environmental issues through providing that perspective that you're talking of? I think certainly. I think the more you know... Uh, the more powerful that people can be in representing information in this type of like environmental and some issues, the more that people know, the more that people would either want to help or find ways they could help. So it's definitely um, something to be aware of. And I think that if more people knew about it, they would try to do more things about those types of issues. Yeah, absolutely. And just because we have time, you were talking a bit last time we were chatting with you about a personal experience you had uh, in regards to uh, some uh, environmental uh, catastrophe that happened around Marshall, Michigan, if I'm not wrong. Oh, no, you're very correct. Um, I actually lived in uh, Marshall, Michigan for a very long time, all my childhood. I grew up in Marshall, Michigan. And in uh, 2010, when I was about 14 years old, uh, the very large um, oil spill, actually the largest inland oil spill in all of America um, actually occurred there. That's the 2010 uh, Enbridge oil spill. The EPA estimates it was over 1.2 million gallons of crude oil was spilled into the Kalamazoo River. Actually, more like the Talmadge Creek than into the Kalamazoo River. But either way, yes, that definitely did happen. It's a giant oil spill. I certainly remember getting a very large headache on the first day it happened because it was actually townsfolk uh, residents that discovered the oil spill. Uh, It wasn't necessarily the company. Those residents informed uh, emergency services and then they informed the company about it. So in turn, it was residents who found the oil spill leaking and then they actually informed the company the company found out a slightly later, but then they actually shut the oil off. Yeah. So a lot of it seems that the Kalamazoo River has kind of a adverse history going into now as well, since that was just 10 years ago. And uh, when I think about something like this personally, and I'm sure you can attest to this as well, uh, as someone who also works in interpretation, that uh, the interpretive field does not necessarily need to exclusively explore these past environmental issues and how they can 
affect uh, people today, but also explore issues that are happening right now. Uh, earlier in our podcast, we were talking about the issue of climate change and many human activities that are happening right now uh, are continuing to uh, cause issues and are important topics for interpreters to talk about. So uh, I'm fascinated to see maybe how oil spill history and oil spill education and how that will uh, reach into the interpretive field. Yeah, certainly. I think um, it's very important to have these like present topics um, to talk about. And especially with like the um, amount of history that we talk about and all these in big industries, how they uh, grew to be as big as they did today. And with issues like oil spills and climate change, stuff that happens in the past, once you research it, becomes slowly applicable to today. And when you have like an issue like an oil spill, that influences everything around it. It influences, honestly, the economy for a short while. The Kalamazoo River was basically closed for two years from that point in Marshall. So about 35 miles down, uh, certain spots where the river were completely unaccessible for about two years after that point. And then even after that, it only slowly started to open back up. So I think with like present issues like that, because an oil spill can happen anywhere there's a pipeline in the ground. So it's definitely something that we can talk about and something that we can always keep in mind. Yeah, maybe have that real world impact that interpreters can can put through through communicating that information. Um. Were there any sort of challenges you found uh, in confronting this issue or in researching this topic? Anything that was complicated or was it relatively straightforward to get that information across? Some of the information uh, was a little complicated, a lot heavily in the um, scientific type field. There's a lot of big statistics and a lot of um, chemical compound names that not necessarily are really straightforward. Um, but in general, Trying to find that information is pretty easy. Uh, if you look at the EPA website, usually you can find, uh, looking up the information on the Kalamazoo River, and you can find a lot of that pollution information, what has been done for the cleanup, um, like removal of sediment, uh, stabilizing the riverbanks, uh, removing dams. That's uh, a big thing they're trying to enforce right now is uh, removing several different dams. But um, that information is pretty easy to come by the difficulty is um trying to understand those uh technical terms um in, in general that's that's one of the most difficult parts about it um especially if someone's not going to um translate that into like layman's terms right yeah so do you as an interpreter take those that terminology that is important to understanding the topic and kind of you know give it a back seat put it in the uh on the back burner instead and allow people to find that themselves if they're interested in it just because it's hard to put in layman's terms or do you find a way to maybe or would you find a way maybe to communicate that sort of science to the general public if you're tasked to interpret this issue i feel there are ways to um get around that uh instead of saying like you could actually just use acronyms um like pcbs you can just you can just describe a pcb as a carcinogen uh, or or a, a cancer-causing heavy uh, pollutant. Uh, so you can honestly just describe it as something else to, instead of using that fancy scientific terminology. 
And I think that would make it a lot more accessible to people. And if that was something I was required to do, that would probably be the way I would do it. Right. Awesome. And what do you think, you know, after looking at all this stuff and spending so much time on it, was the uh, or is the uh, big takeaway in regarding uh, interpreting environmental issues on the Kalamazoo River? It's kind of interesting uh, because this information is so readily available, yet I didn't really hear too much about it before diving into this research. I knew about the oil spill, and I knew that the Kalamazoo River did have pollution in it, but I didn't know to the extent. I didn't know that, honestly, before that point, I knew you probably weren't supposed to eat the fish from the river, but I didn't know to the extent that it's almost unacceptable to eat the fish from the river right now. Um, you could have many different harmful side effects, health issues, um, neurological issues from eating that fish continually. And there's lots of people who don't know that. Uh, either there aren't signs in their area or they just aren't aware of the issue itself. So with that kind of information that you they don't have, they are unknowingly putting themselves at risk of being exposed to these health dangers. So I feel like... Uh, a big takeaway is that this is a pretty big issue that needs a little bit more exposure. There are there is like the Kalamazoo River Watershed Council. Um, there are big companies um, that are helping the EPA with cleanups and all of that. And and there are news articles on the issue. And then you go to an environmentalism page and they'll have some information about it as well. But I feel there should be some more ways to expose the public to this information. So the big takeaway for me is uh, this is a very important issue that needs a little bit more attention. And they are, I'm glad that the EPA is doing more to clean up and they're doing a pretty good job thus far, but there's still a decent amount to go. And they have plans going out and funding going out as well. So it's, it's a big issue that could become an even bigger issue uh, with the danger of more oil spills pcbs are a little like less on the side because that source of pollution is cut off uh basically but the oil spills is like the next constant danger that is definitely a big takeaway from this topic and uh we'd uh like to thank you for your time wes very welcome. It's definitely awesome to research all of this information and uh, compile information like this. And I, I appreciate being invited on the show. With all of that being said, my takeaway from today's episode is that interpreting environmental issues is particularly difficult, not only because opinions vary so widely, but also because the validity of environmental issues as well as the impacts of them are disputed widely. For exactly this reason, the interpreter faces a very large challenge to not only make the information available, but also transparent in an effort to make it relatable as well as engaging to all visitors in order to elicit an actionable response. Thank you for listening to the Kalamazoo Valley Museum's Interpretive Hour podcast. If you wish to learn more about the episode and topic, 
please visit kalamazoomuseum.org podcast for bibliography, notes, episode transcripts, and other behind-the-scenes content. Due to a COVID-19 stay-at-home order, the museum is currently closed until further notice. Until then, stay safe and healthy, and visit us in two weeks when we will talk about cryptids, ghouls, and the unknown.